Okay, so today is the 21st of March, and uh, I'm going to hand out, just in case anyone hasn't gotten their exam, I just want to give people one more chance to, to take it. Remember, I don't need, um, you just take these exams, I don't need them back. So I'm just trying to, you know, there, for people who had some trouble, there are comments on the blue books themselves to try to help you see where you went wrong. Um, wait, before I forget, uh, I'll just mention that uh, the philosophy club, if anyone is interested in chatting with some philosophy majors and minors, is 2 to 3 p.m. on Thursdays. Every Thursday, they talk about a different theme every Thursday in Schmidt Hall, room 242. Um, the exam, the second exam is, uh, oh, I know what I should say first is, uh, um, I suppose everyone knows that there's this navigate system for notifying for professors to, I don't know what it's for exactly. I think the one of the primary things it's for is getting information to students who are not really keyed into their courses. And so the provost's office wants us to flag students who are having trouble in the course um, in Navigate. And so I did that earlier today. And I know that some of you, I mean, I don't know if you're here in the room, but I know that some of you um, replied to me. So I just wanted to say that what I, here's what I did in Navigate. If you got an F or below on the first exam, I notified you in Navigate that you're at risk of failing uh, because your first exam grade is an F or below. Now, that might be confusing if you're paying a lot of attention only to the Canvas percentages. Because if you look at the syllabus, you'll see that the first exam is not worth that many points. The second exam is worth more than twice the number of points of the first exam. And the third exam is worth even more. Those are the real grades. The grades that you get for the quizzes are just sort of, you know, somewhat easy grades that you get every week that are intended to help you keep up with the reading. But the real work that assesses your understanding are the exams. And so someone could get an F in the first exam but if they did well on all the quizzes, it could appear to them that they're doing okay, but they're not. And so that's why I wanted to flag. I didn't flag people who got Ds on the first exam, which that's also you know, alarming. But what I can say is if you haven't thought about this, you should think about, I say this on the syllabus, but you should think about how many points a particular exam is worth. And then you should figure out what the percentages are that, that you got, the percent you got right. And then you should figure out where that puts you in terms of a letter grade. I mean, I can tell you that if you got, wait, let me just double check that I have this right. I think this is right, that if you got 50 points or less on the first exam, you got an F. You know, just by the normal percentages of letter grades, 
you know, that um, just the normal percentages, I put these in the syllabus too. You know, 80 to 90% is an A. I mean, 90% to 100% is an A, 80 to 90% is a B, you know, that normal stuff. Uh, if you do that math, then you see where the points for a particular exam break down. And so I just, but I just wanted to, in case, for people who weren't paying attention, if you got an F in the first exam, you should really be nervous. Uh, even if it doesn't look like you should based on your Canvas percentages, because the exams are where we really test your knowledge and they're gonna be worth more and more points, the second exam and the third exam. So even if you do really well on the quizzes, you're still gonna be in danger um, if you keep failing the exams, obviously. Yeah? So my Canvas grade at the end of the semester will be my actual grade, should that Well, one thing is, I mean, first, okay, I'll say three things. One thing is, at MSU, it's often the case that your Canvas grade at the end of the semester won't be your final grade because a lot of professors will give you a syllabus. That's the main document. And so for example, here's one way that this might go awry in this class. I posted a 30 point extra credit column in Canvas and Like many teachers, I'm not gonna take the time to make sure that that all shakes out properly in Canvas. I'm just saying, here's a column for an extra 30 points. Um, depending on how I set that up, it might end up looking like, you know, who knows what in these final numbers on Canvas. But set that aside. Even if I have it set up so that the Canvas percentages are accurate, which I'm telling you now that many professors won't do in the university because it involves a lot of tinkering that is just kind of pointless. Um, even if that were the case, you're not gonna see now something that's representative of how you're doing simply because I made the first exam worth not that many points and I added a tier of assignments, namely the, the quizzes, that give you a kind of easy weekly points for keeping up with the work. So because, you know, and the reason I made the first exam worth not that many points is so that you would have a sort of a way to do the exam the first time without being really punished for it for the whole semester by having it be a really heavy exam point-wise. But because I do that, and because I offer these kind of weekly easy points, even if I do, even if I take the time to make sure all the exam percentages shake out properly on Canvas, you're not gonna see right now how much failing exams is gonna hurt you because the exams are gonna be worth more and more points. That's the, that's the main point. So, so I say to you, as a sort of a general comment about MSU, Focus on the syllabus, always. Don't pay attention to those Canvas percentages. Sometimes they'll be right, sometimes they won't. It turns out to be really tedious and time consuming for us to tweak and make sure that every assignment that's added is calculated properly in Canvas. I think actually, so far, I think actually they probably are, because I think I did it right, but I'm not absolutely sure. But my main point is just that 
even if I did it right on Canvas, the percentages you see now are not representative of how you're doing in the class right now because you've only had one exam and it's not worth that many points. And you know, the difference between a, an A and an F is only 40 points on the exam. But later on, it's gonna be much bigger and so you could end up failing the course even if it looks like you're doing okay now on Canvas. You know. Sorry that was such a, a long explanation, but do you wanna follow up or? The most important thing to do before you start any course is read the whole syllabus very carefully, like I said. And at the, at the, in, the, in the early part of the syllabus, I give you instructions for how to calculate your grade at any time in the course right now. But I think probably that it will look the same on Canvas right now than it, than it you know, as it will when you do the, calcu the actual calculation. Because I think when I added that column for 30 extra points, I made it worth zero. And so I think that'll mean that it won't affect the final percentage. So I'll bet that when you do that, it'll look the same as on Canvas. But the important point is, so, you know, I mean, I want to sort of emphasize that I'm not doing anything weird here. What I'm doing is actually a bunch of nice stuff, which is, first of all, to give you a very low point first exam. And second of all, to give you some points every week that are not difficult to get. So, but by being so nice, it might look like you're doing okay in the class if you didn't pay attention to what your score was on the exam. And the exams are obviously the main way that we're gonna evaluate how you're doing in the class. So, you know, someone might have gotten a 50 and thought, oh, 50 out of 90, that's not, you know, terrible. And it's not in terms of a thousand point course, only losing 40 points. I mean, it's not great, but, but you have to take getting an F or a D on that first exam as a big alarm bell. Because even though it's not gonna kill you in the course, if you keep getting Fs on the exams, you're gonna fail. So that's all I'm saying, and that's why I sent out the Navigate things, just to sort of flag it for everyone. Like, you know, even, I didn't send out the, the Navigate notifications to people who got Ds, but I just sent it out to people who got Fs, and, and then I'm saying it now. Do the calculation for how many points a B is, and a C is, and a D is, and an F is, for a 90-point exam. Just calculate the percentages. And if you're in that C minus D F range, then you know, worry so that you can do better next time. And like I say, because I'm trying to be nice about it, this first exam is not gonna hang around your neck because it's not that many points in the context of a big thousand point course. But you have to be clear about what's going on so that you don't have some false confidence based on your canvas points now. I said all that stuff about Canvas, partly just to warn you that, that many professors won't have the Canvas percentages match. I think right now I do, but I'm not certain. Um, but I think if you do the calculation yourself, you know, the way you do the calculation is simple. You just add up the points that were possible so far. 
you know, taking full points on all the assignments so far. And then add up the points that you've earned so far. And then calculate the percentage, and there's your grade, you know. And it should match the Canvas percentage now, but I'm not sure if it will. Um, but, uh, but the other reason I tell you this is that, um, like, let's, I mean, I think about these things because I was a chair for too long. But if you ever find yourself wanting to contest a final grade and say the professor doesn't, you know, well, let's just, I'm not going to go through all the details, but point is, when you want to contest a final grade, if you ever do, you do it on the basis of the syllabus. So you have to take syllabi very seriously because that's like the, you know, it's like the, the promise of the course. Okay, um, but any other questions about that? Just to make sure that everything's cool. Okay. So, you know, we have the other exam coming up uh, on Thursday. And, you know, I gave you the questions last Wednesday. We talked about the questions on Thursday. Does anyone have any follow-up thoughts or questions about the exam today? Because I'm fine to talk about it if you want to more. Yeah. Okay, I'll read it. That one says, the experience machine thought experiment provides a criticism of hedonism. Explain this criticism, and then I say in parentheses, this will require explaining the thought experiment and the essential components of hedonism itself. I'm ready. Well, because hypothetically, uh, the experience machine would give you more pleasure than pain. Right. So if a hedonist says that they wouldn't go into the machine, they're kind of going against their own philosophy. That's relevant. Um, does anyone want to say more about this? Should we talk about this a bit? Does anyone have any thoughts about this, about how you get a criticism of hedonism from the experience machine thought experiment? Yeah. She was saying that, I mean, she made the correct point that if a hedonist didn't want to plug into the machine, that hedonist would be in some way inconsistent because you can maximize pleasure by plugging into the machine. And so why wouldn't the hedonist want to plug into the machine? That's relevant, but, um, but that's not really the, the core of the, of the criticism. You could you could mention it, Nick. But let's see. Yeah. Uh, is it that the experiences have to be real, or this is relevant too? That that the experiences that you get in the experience machine are in you know there are problems with plugging into the experience machine, and one of them is that you're not really doing anything, or you're not really, as Nozick says, you're not really a person. You're committing a kind of suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's relevant too. These are all relevant. We're doing good. I'm enjoying this. So we can keep going if you want. Like, more thoughts about what that, how to put your finger on that criticism. Yeah. Would the criticism be that, like, if you're not really doing anything, then you're not really doing anything? 
thinking it is a kind of suicide, even as it would encourage a kind of suicide, that that makes the theory faulty, that would make a good life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Nozick has all these criticisms about why plugging in sound terrible. And, you know, he says that you'd be committing a kind of suicide, that you don't want a man-made reality, you want to have real experiences, real activities. He says that you might want to do things in the world, you want to actually make a difference. Um, and so these are criticisms of the life you would have in the machine. And then the, the interesting way of criticizing hedonism is to say, well, plugging into the machine would really maximize pleasure. But clearly, based on these intuitions that Nozick comes up with, that's not a good life. And hedonism is supposed to be a theory of what a good life is. But if hedonism endorses plugging into the machine, then hedonism is endorsing a life that's not as good as a different kind of a life. And so we're... You know, and the idea is that, that there, that's, uh, the thought is that Nozick has too, is that if you're the kind of person who is really committed to hedonism, you'd want to plug in. And there, there's this character in The Matrix that I mentioned from the first Matrix film. His name has escaped me again, but there's a scene. Cypher. Cypher, that's, is, that, is that right? Cypher, yeah. So he... There's a scene where he's talking to one of the agents and he tells the agent, I want to be back in the matrix. I don't want to, you know, and the matrix is analogous to the experience machine. I want to be back in the matrix. I don't want to experience this reality and I don't want to remember anything. Just put me back in the matrix. And that's a committed hedonist who is saying, yes, that life in the experience machine is the best life. And so the criticism of hedonism is to take Robert Nozick's intuitions about why plugging in would not be best for one, seriously. Take those criticisms seriously. You know, that you'd be committed to suicide, that you want to actually make a difference in the world, all those kinds of things. All those kinds of problems with being in the experience machine for life. And say, well, how can hedonism be true if it endorses plugging into an experience machine where we have a lot of reasons to believe that that's not a good life. And if you disagree with what Nozick says about why it's not a good idea to plug in, then you probably are a hedonist, you know, which is fine. And some healthy percentage of people are hedonists ultimately, and, you know, that's fine. Um... But this is just one kind of interesting way to get a criticism of hedonism, and it involves these kind of interesting maneuvers. In some uh, lecture, handful of lectures ago, I, I spelled this out in a few, just a few very short steps. You can maybe check the podcast for it or check your notes for it. 
Um, but that, but what we just talked about is, you know, is the deal. Follow-ups? You want to talk about that more? I'm perfectly happy to. I don't care. Yeah. Wait, can you say that one again? But what, what, I mean, yes, you're right. But what Nozick is asking is, would you plug in for life? And because if you were only plugging into the experience machine, you know, in and out for whatever it is, two days, two months, two years, that doesn't generate the pressure on this theory of happiness. Because in order to really take a clear look at this theory of happiness, hedonism, you need to ask the question, would you plug in for life? Because then you're committed to maximizing pleasure. And if you're that committed to maximizing pleasure, then we've got a sort of, so there's something like the, the experience machine, thought experiment, forces the hedonist to commit to something based on principles the hedonist has espoused. The hedonist says maximizing pleasure is what amounts to a good life. And, the, and Nozick is saying, oh yeah? Well, here's a way you can maximize pleasure. So you would have to plug in because you, for life, because you have said, you've said, stated these principles of a good life. And now I'm going to give you all the pleasure, you know, you want. And so the, the, what's interesting about the experience machine is it sort of forces the hedonist to acknowledge their commitments based on that theory. Like if you're a hedonist and if you think that pleasure is the key to a good life, then you'd have to plug in because Nozick is telling you you can get all the pleasure you want because you get to design your you know, so-called life in the machine. And it also brings out the fact that pleasure is a mental state. It's not something real in the world. And so, I'm sorry, but and um, so, you know, it also brings out this idea that if you ground your theory of happiness on mere mental states, something strange about that and the, and the experience machine brings that out it brings out what's problematic about basing everything on mental states okay yeah yeah Yeah. I think you're absolutely right that, I mean, I know for me, I would like to eat cookies and I would like to eat chocolate chip cookies and chocolate peanut butter cupcakes all the time and pizza. That's just what I want to eat all the time. And, but when I do eat those things too much, I don't enjoy them as much. I found that I can eat like I mean, I have a really high tolerance, so I can eat like two peanut butter chocolate chip cupcakes every single day, and I'm really happy with that. 
If I eat like four, then I'm going to start to not like them. So what you're saying is exactly right. But Robert Nozick has a way around this because what he says is you can program any experiences you want. So I can program into the experience machine. I only get two cupcakes a day and then I have something else. So then I'm always really happy with cupcakes. And remember, he even said, if you want to, you can come out of the machine at certain intervals and reprogram it because you've decided that the life that you've programmed is not quite as great as you would like it to be. So you're right, but he, he found a way around this because you can program in whatever you want. You don't have to program in the same pleasure all the time. In the same way that if you're living a life, you know, like with me and my cupcakes and cookies, I can, you know, mix it up. Did you have a question? Yeah, I just had a question. So when you're asking us the question, are on the exam, are you looking for us to criticize hedonists who don't believe they should go into a machine or hedonism? Look, like, that's an interesting question. Yeah, that's related to your question in a way. So the question is, are you criticizing hedonists who wouldn't, do you want to criticize hedonists who wouldn't plug in? And the answer is, not really, because if someone is a hedonist, they've already asserted some principles that what follows from their principles is that they would plug in. And so what we're looking for, so if, they, if, if there's a person who says, I'm a hedonist and I don't want to plug in, I think Robert Nozick would say you have inconsistent beliefs because if you're a hedonist, you want to plug in because you can maximize episodes of pleasure, which are mental states. But if you're someone who thinks you're a hedonist and you also think it's important to make a difference in the world and it's also important to be in contact with real reality, not a man-made reality, then those principles are conflicting with your hedonism in a way that you're not really a hedonist. You're, you're a conflicted hedonist. At least this is what Robert Nozick would say. And so it's interesting, if you think you're a hedonist and you still wouldn't plug in, then you might not really be a hedonist because you might be feeling the pull of some of these other goods in life that can't be reduced to pleasure. Because remember, the thing for hedonists is that everything that's good gets cashed out in terms of pleasure. Because pleasure is the only intrinsic good. And so remember we talked about, for example, that you might think friendship is a, a good, a, a good component of life. But if you're a hedonist, friendship is only good when it generates pleasure. And, but people who are not hedonists want to say, well, wait a minute. No, friendship is just good, period. I don't care about how much pleasure it produces. In a per so a person might also say, I think making a difference in the world is really important. If you're a hedonist, remember that's one of the things that Robert Nozick complains about with being plugged in an experience machine. But the hedonist has to say, yeah, the only reason I think making a difference in the world is really good is that it gives me pleasure. And, you know, the point is, if you think that 
pleasure is the most important thing, you can get a ton of pleasure by plugging into the experience machine. And if there are things that make you not want to plug into the experience machine, then there's a tension in your beliefs about what a good life is, and you're probably not a hedonist. That's a, it's a really fascinating question. Yeah. So he is going after the individual. Well, no. Okay, right. I'm sorry I didn't finish the answer. <laughs> so the answer is what you really need to write about is the way that the thought experiment functions as a criticism of the theory of hedonism. Yeah, and that point is that what we've already said, that... Uh, How the experiment contradicts it. Yeah, that, that, that the hedonist thinks that the hedonist is going to get the best life by plugging in, but Robert Nozick shows, wait a minute, that's not the best life, because look at these things that you're leaving out. And so, uh, yeah... I mean, when I spelled it out in just a few steps, the point was plugging in would be best for one. But it looks like it wouldn't because you're, you're leaving out a bunch of stuff. But uh, wait, now you got me really wanting to just refer to my notes quickly just to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Erica, hold on to your question. Yeah, it plays on this, the criticism of hedonism plays on this idea that Nozick makes a case that plugging into the machine would not be best for you. It would not lead to a good life. But a hedonist, because the hedonist is committed to maximizing pleasure, has to claim that plugging in would be best for one because that's the way to, uh, um, to maximize pleasure. I mean, I'll just tell you what I, what I had when we, when we talked about it before, just so we can put this on the table, because it's interesting to think about it in this way. I had a three, this just comes from Ben Bramble in this article that Ben Bramble wrote. He has a three-step argument against hedonism using the experience machine. The first step says plugging in would not be best for one, and that's for all the reasons that knows it gives. Hedonism entails that plugging in would be best for one because you'd maximize pleasure. But hedonism is false because there's a contradiction there that uh, hedonism entails, re recommends something false that you should plug in. So anyway, okay, so yeah. Oh, I'm just gonna clarify, make sure I interpret that right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hedonism recommends a way of living a good life that is false. That's what Robert Nozick is trying to offer as a criticism of, of hedonism. We can talk about it more. I'm kind of having a good time if you want to we can follow up. Yeah.
Yeah, it's interesting because I, I'm tempted to just dismiss what you're raising by saying that you have to just assume for the sake of the thought experiment that these super duper neuropsychologists can repair and manage and sustain this machine. Because that is kind of, you know, built into the thought experiment is that you have to go along with Nozick on some assumptions, and this is one, that they can take care of the machine. But in a way, you're raising questions that um, are kind of saying, wait a minute, this thought experiment is not practical. And so why am I going to go along with a thought experiment that's not practical? I just think that, I just think, no. My answer to the thought experiment is no, I'm not going to assume that, that, that this machine is possible and that they could build it and maintain it and everything. So sometimes in philosophy, philosophers ask you to buy into a really complex, far out thought experiment. And it's, and they say, oh, don't think about that. We're gonna assume that's gonna be okay. But one way to criticize a thought experiment is to say, you know, no, I don't accept all these things that you're asking me to accept. I don't, in your case, what you just said, I don't think that these scientists could, you know, you didn't say this part, but build and then maintain a, a complex machine like this. Um, so it's an interesting kind of case. Okay. So, yeah, John. Is the experience machine thought experiment, is it really proving that hedonism is an untenable theory? Or is it proving that there aren't nearly as many hedonists out there as think they are? Uh, because it seems to me that a, a hardcore hedonist might say, okay, I'll still plug in. Like, I wonder, yeah. was Fred Feldman, did he write, I don't know, was he aware of this criticism and did he ever answer it? Or, yeah. We can't really, the one reason we can't go into it is that Fred Feldman's theory of hedonism is different than DH, and okay. we only studied DH, but, but he was, he did take it seriously. Um, and, well, I mean, I think, I mean, it's an interesting way that you're presenting it. I mean, I think maybe, let me just try to say some things and see if I, if I manage to answer the question. Um, first of all, clearly there would be people who would plug in? I mean, I think there would be people who, and especially, you know, the interesting part of this is it kind of depends on maybe how you see life or how you see your future or how irritating or difficult your life is. Maybe you've had some terrible things happen that you can't shake off and you're really depressed about what the future holds. And so if some kind of experience machine presented itself like this, you'd be like, sign me up, you know? Um, I mean, I can imagine a really depressed person just saying, yeah, if you can plug into my brain and make nothing but pleasure for me, I want that. Or maybe a person who has, you know, chronic pain or something, like really serious chronic pain would be like, yeah, if you can plug into my brain, let's go. Um, but, I mean, one thing that's interesting about what, the way you're raising it and the way that we've been talking about it is that for the ease of talking about it, we're talking about individuals, and we're asking whether or not individuals will plug in or not plug in, and Nozick does this, and you know. But really what we're trying to do 
is criticize the theory and reasons that make the theory sound like it's uh, a good one. And so when push comes to shove, we really want to try to say the principles of hedonism are refuted by this thought experiment by imagining individuals coming to recognize that pleasure is not the pri only good. You know, I mean, because the, the idea is that when you think about plugging into the machine, then you start to wonder, oh, wait a minute, maybe there are things other than episodes of pleasure that are good, making a difference in the world, being a certain kind of person, having a contact with reality. And so, so, okay, I, so, I, so here's what I'd want to say to try to really answer your question is that by thinking about it at the individual level, we are led as individuals to see a problem with the theory itself. We're led as individuals thinking about whether or not we would plug in to, to discovering that we care about more than just pleasure, if you agree with Nozick. So, you know, we have people who are just hedonists and who would plug in and they're consistent hedonists and they would plug in. And some percentage of you are in that category and that's fine. But there's another percentage of you who when you contemplate plugging in, you recognize if you're like Nozick, wait a minute, episodes of pleasure is not the only thing I care about. I care about other things too. And I can't get these other things if I plug in, even if I could get all the pleasure I want, which leads you to see, Nozick thinks, that there's something wrong with the theory. There's something wrong with the idea that um, pleasure is the only intrinsic good. I feel somewhat satisfied with, with that. But it is hard to, it is interesting and hard to, to go back and forth between talking about individual decisions and then making sense of how that turns into a criticism of a theory itself. But that's what we do with, uh, with hedonism in the experience machine. Any other exam thoughts? Yeah. Um, for the second question, explain mm -hmm. the desire theory of well-being. Mm -hmm. um, would that be a good segue from like, the first question? It's kind of like those who wouldn't plug into the experience machine but still seek like, um, intrinsic uh, goods. goods like, well, or just other goods. Stuff. Well, okay, I mean, more or less, because uh, Nozick kind of presents it. You know, we, if we had more time, we would read a different later version of the experience machine where he takes all these phrases I want out of the thought experiment. Because in the thought experiment, he keeps saying I want. He keeps saying, or we want. Like, I, I want more than just pleasure. I want to make a difference in the world. You know, he keeps using these I want phrases. And just based on that one version that we read, it's, it's what you say makes sense that um, you can understand someone 
who's opposed to the experience machine, who is a desire theorist, because they want to satisfy these other desires for making a difference in the world, being a certain kind of person, all these other desires. Um, not being trapped in a man-made reality. All, those are, you could, you could under, one way to understand those is as desires that you want to satisfy. And you're not going to satisfy those desires by plugging into the experience machine. Um, so it is one way of seeing how they're related. I, the only reason I'm tentative about it is if we read another version of the experience machine, which we didn't, and if you read the end of the Ben Bramble article, at the end of the article, Ben Bramble manages to use the experience machine to also serve as a criticism of desire theory. But we didn't do that um, explicitly in class. So given what we've done, that something like that works. And just notice that it's not that there are a number of other goods that you take to be intrinsic. It's just that you take satisfying desires to be the number one good. And then you can plug in a lot. The, the desire theorist, you know, one person who's a desire theorist can desire most of all making a difference in the world. Another person who's a desire theorist can desire most of all being famous. You know, whatever. It's, the theory is about satisfying desires, so you don't need to plug in. The theory doesn't require specific desires. So, and it's in the way that Nozick puts it, it sounds like, you know, there's a person who wants all these different things and therefore doesn't want to plug in. And it sounds like in that first description of the experience machine that it's just a, possibly a desire theorist. So it is an interesting way to, to go between the two. Okay. Okay. So as a uh, palate cleanser... I'm going to tell you just some, because it's kind of interesting, some courses that we're offering next semester. We're offering a, core, a course called Philosophical Issues in Law and Justice. We're offering a course called Critical Reasoning and Arguments that's a kind of mid-level logic course uh, taught by our chair, Kirk McDermott. We offer courses in cognitive science at the 200 level that are really interesting. Introduction to Cognitive Science, because there's a Cognitive Science minor that is housed in our department, but that also includes linguistics and computer science and psychology. There's also a course, this is a really interesting course, called Society in an Age of Technological Compulsion. That's an interesting course. And then there's a course called Ancient Philosophy and the Art of Happiness. Um, and we didn't really talk about ancient theories of happiness, so that's kind of an interesting course. These are all 200-level courses, which you can take after you've taken this course. Okay, that's the palette uh, cleansed. And now, I think what we'll do is I want to sort of go back to what we were talking about last time about common sense understandings of the way that we use the word meaningful and the way that we use the word happiness in trying to think about the difference between what adds meaning to life and what makes you happy. Feldman 
thinks that he has a theory, or he, not his theory, but D.H. He thinks that hedonism can be a theory of a good life. And Susan Wolfe, who we're, study, who we're you know, starting to study now, thinks that, as I said, a life has three, a good life, a good life has three dimensions, meaningfulness, happiness, and morality. So it'll be helpful if we can think about whether or not we believe that these are two different concepts. Sometimes things that are meaningful are also going to be things that we get happiness from. But sometimes they're not, and that's what's interesting. What are some, can you, so I'd like examples of activities or projects or experiences that where happiness and meaningfulness overlap, and some examples where happiness and meaningfulness pull apart. Do you know what I mean? Like there are gonna be some experiences that make you happy and they're meaningful. And there are going to be some experiences that make you happy, but they're not meaningful. And there are going to be some experiences that are meaningful, but don't make you happy. And it would be interesting if we can come up with, just in your common sense understanding, yeah. Okay, that's interesting that there could be, so you said therapy. Yeah, and it could be that certain examples, depending on how they go, could make you happy and be meaningful, or could only make you happy. I mean, because I'm thinking like maybe a therapist comes up with a, through therapy, like let's say through therapy, you're able to let go of something that was making you miserable but the process wasn't particularly meaningful, but you were just able to let go of something and now you, you know, you have the sort of pathway to happiness is open. But it could also be that the, the, the process of therapy turns out to be meaningful as you're sort of working through these issues and it could also make you happy. Could also be the third way too, that the process of therapy is meaningful but you, you can't quite get to a place where you can be happy. So that is an interesting example where maybe depending on how it goes, you get all these different classifications. Interesting example, yeah. So the same thing is about happy part, because like, let's say someone has like, a class drama or something like yeah. that, yeah, unhappy. Yeah, but, but potentially meaningful depending on how it goes. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Other examples of any of these kinds of cases of meaningfulness? Yeah, I feel like for an artist, like specifically a painter, yeah. um, doing the art itself, like making a painting, can be kind of painful and happy at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I feel like where meaningfulness and happiness overlap is like when that painting's finally finished and then they get to like show it off at like an art exhibit or something and then they get to watch people like yeah. take in their art and Yeah, that's another interesting example because it seems like it depends on the person and it depends on the situation because, you know, there are some artists who, who are never happy. I don't mean never happy, but I mean there are some artists who, when their work is done, 
only see ways of improving it and they can never really be satisfied enough with the final product to just have some joy. Um, but then there are cases like you described too. And I think there, maybe there are some artists who experience a kind of joyful process of creation, but there are also artists who experience a lot of, you know, tumult in their process of creation. Creative process is one of the most interesting things. It's very difficult to put your finger on. Other examples of meaningfulness, happiness, yeah. Okay, wait a second. First, tell me your name. Nina. Nina. Um, wait, but why would going to physical therapy, would that really be meaningful in, I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't. I'm just saying going to physical therapy, I guess, I mean, it's an interesting example because we're sort of now forced to kind of think about what meaningfulness means. Yeah, that's a fascinating example because that makes me wonder if meaningful is the right word. It might be, but it might also be just that it really, it was valuable to him or it mattered to him. But was it meaningful? I'm really not sure. I mean, I, it could be, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, if you add that, if you add that bit, so that now, yeah, that's an interesting bit to add because now the person can go for walks with his kids or do things. But then it sounds like now that what's meaningful are these activities with family members, not so much just getting the, yeah, but but I'm not positive. I'm, I mean, it's just interesting to try to, sort out these things. And you can see why it's important because we're trying to figure out what makes a life good. And we think that there's this concept of meaningfulness that's important. And in order to figure out if, if that really makes sense to say that a life should be, that a, a life without meaning is lacking something, we need to really be clear on what meaningfulness means. Yeah, that's an interesting example. Failure as like a concept. Mm -hmm. Like obviously no one enjoys failing unless like they're masochistic. Um, but it's probably the most meaningful thing that can happen to you because yeah. it gives you perspective on like what needs to be improved. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, I mean I mean all we're doing I'm not like the ultimate ultimate arbiter of what's right or wrong, but but I think that seems right. I'm trying to figure out if it's related at all these other kind of cases where, because I've definitely had some experiences of failure that have really been important and really seem meaningful. But I wonder if we want to say that the failure itself is meaningful or if maybe the perspective granted from the failure is meaningful or if it matters. I'm not sure. I was just thinking back on what I said. Maybe, so like say, you're ever a recovering drug addict and you fail, that might be 
hope will feel bad and you're relapsing, so you might not even come back until I try to get off drugs again. Okay, good, yeah, because there are going to be kinds of failure that are clearly not meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to think about it. And so, it, so that might mean either that we need to talk about different kinds of failure or the... A constructive failure, I guess, where it's like you know you're not going to be negatively affected by it. Yeah. Like if you fail, yeah. say you fail an assignment, but you're given a chance to revise it. Yeah, that's really a hard, that's a hard example. I can't figure out what to say about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I noticed in the two Susan Wolf articles, yeah. in the first article, one of the criteria of meaningfulness that she gave was uh, you had to be moderately successful. Mm -hmm. So in the second article, she did not mention that criteria. Mm -hmm. So it seems that given uh, this example, to say that you're moderately successful at failing, yeah. is sort of a contradiction. Or, go, or go. wait, wouldn't the wouldn't the point be that wait, what did you call the second kind of pot? What did you call the failure? The failure, where it's like you you know you're going to. What did you call it? I'm sorry. What did you call it? Constructive. Constructive. Failure. Yeah. No, no, it's it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, okay. Wait. Well, what Susan Wolf? Wait. How did that help at all? I mean, what Susan Wolf was in the first article, she she gives these examples of people who were not successful, like for example, a scientist who who comes up with a theory, but it turns out that another scientist came up with it just a little bit before. The reason she kind of gives up on that is she kind of thinks that it's still meaningful. The, the process and activity of coming up with the theory is still meaningful, even if you, in the end, get one out by, beat by some other. It seemed like it was a troubling criteria yeah, because yeah. Uh, in a society, uh, many scientists could be looking for a cure yeah, for cancer. Right. And only a few succeed. Yeah. Does that mean all the others do right. not have meaningful yeah. lives? Yeah, it's right. Strange. She's worried about. She so. Yeah, she's worried about the same thing, and the idea is, I guess, that there are certain kinds of processes and activities that you can be engaged in that are meaningful in themselves, uh, whether or not you ultimately succeed. But she's kind of tinkering with this idea that it can't be a kind of a situation where you're just. Failing, failing, failing. You know, like if you're a, a scientist who's really terrible at doing your scientific work and you're just failing all the time, then that's not going to be meaningful. So she's trying to figure out how to put it so that there has to be some degree of success in the activity. Or like if you're, um, you know, you, you are working hard to become a quarterback, but you just can't throw straight, you know, no matter what you do. That's not going to be very meaningful because... You just, you just can't get it off the ground. Like you can't get the activity working well enough for it to be meaningful. She's trying to think about some stuff like that. I was just thinking, um, I guess the fact like, you know, scientists getting there before the other, a great example is like Nikola Tesla, where he technically discovered electricity first, but did he publish it? No, so Albert Einstein came in and was like, okay, like I was also working on the same thing and he got published first, so everyone knows Einstein, not a lot of people know Tesla just because of the whole situation, but does that make Nikola Tesla's life 
Not important? Absolutely not. I mean, or like think about his life, you know? Yeah. His life was still, I, I don't know the details of this example, but his life is still meaningful, I presume. That, yeah, because he's still, yeah. it's not like he wasn't written in the history books. Like yeah. He's a known person. So I wouldn't yeah. say his, not failure, I guess, like, in, like not inability to act yeah. got him less value in life. I wouldn't say so. Yeah, she's trying to think of these examples where, I mean, if you imagine that he got no notoriety and was frustrated turn after turn. We wouldn't even know his name then. And would he have a meaningful life? Maybe if he was successful enough at the actual work to get a good experience at it. Anyway, yeah, these are complicated. I, yeah. Well, then it's more of like confidence versus success. Like you have to yeah, a bit that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it because then it, it takes the focus away from achievement or acknowledgement or something else. There's some story like this about um, uh, Darwin too, that, that there was another person who was working on a theory of natural selection and didn't get it published or something. And I, I remember reading about it once and thinking there was something a little bit weird about that story. Anyway, yeah. I feel like the layers of this conversation can be combined Yeah, it's interesting because the way that ultimately Susan Wolf is going to try to do this is to try to talk about a subjective component to meaningfulness and an objective component. And the subjective component is going to be something like fulfillment. And that kind of captures some of the things you're talking about where you know, certain activities are only going to fulfill certain people. Um, and that's going to be a, an important requirement for meaningfulness. But then this objective component she's going to work with is what she calls positive value in the first um, article. In the second article, she calls objective value. Uh, okay, how are we doing with, anyone have more examples of just trying to think about how we use these words meaningful and happy to see if we can learn something? Yeah. I'm thinking like Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at its, at its best. I mean, or just misery, but, you know, at its best. I mean, if someone... There's some show that I watched, some series on Netflix that I watched, but it must be really old now, about this guy who was in jail for a long time. I think of a movie. Huh? I can think of a movie, Shots and Redemption. Yeah, that's, in, that's a similar kind of case where... What is it? No, it's a movie, yeah, I, I wish I could remember, but uh, it's about a five-season show. For some reason, I was really into it, but it's probably seven, eight years old. Anyway, but anyway, the point is that 
best case scenario, you can imagine someone having a kind of meaningful, life-changing experience in prison. They're in prison, so it's clearly not a happy experience, but they, maybe they discover education, maybe they turn their life around, maybe they have, develop a relationship with someone in prison or something, and, and they might look back and think it was meaningful, um, even though not happy. Yeah, that's an interesting kind of case. Okay, well, okay. Um, uh, let me just remind you a little bit about what we already did with Susan Wolf to make sure that we have that in our heads. Which is that one way that she wants to start is by saying, well, here are three kinds of lives that are not meaningful. She thinks that that's a kind of helpful way to start to kind of identify some kind of features of life that, are, that lead to a not meaningful life. In the first one, she has that example of a blob life. And she tries to, you know, this person who just watches TV and drinks beer all day is her example. And the idea is that there's something passive about that that she thinks is a kind of, that this kind of passivity is not going to work in, for cultivating meaning. So she thinks that she's going to say that some kind of activity is required, that you have to somehow actively engage in some project or activity in order to be to have meaning. And the, the second one, the second kind of meaningless life is this life of useless activity, which she thinks of the kind of person who's a workaholic, who's focused on you know, just earning money, or a kind of, um, well, that's the example she, she focuses on. And, um, and her point there is that, it, is that activity in itself is not enough, that the activity can't be pointless or empty, that it has to be an activity that in some way, what she's going to say later is that the activity has to latch on to some kind of objective value or what she calls positive value here. And then the third one is this tricky one that we were talking about, that she thinks that there is something like bankrupt lives. And she gives this example of uh, a scientist who gets beaten in their discovery. And another example she gives is a person, a business person, who devotes their life to a particular business, and then the business goes bankrupt. Um, but she kind of, she's tentative about that third one for reasons that we just discussed. So she says on page 840, here's her one sentence kind of summary about this. She says, quote, a meaningful life is one that is actively and at least somewhat successfully engaged in a project or projects of positive value. And she's going to call positive value later objective value. I mentioned before that she wants us to take this term project widely and not too narrowly. And, you know, we just talked about the fact that activity... Oh, there's that really interesting example that she uses in order to make the claim that the activity must engage the person. And she talks about the alienated housewife, who's an example of a person who's doing a lot of things, but the things that the alienated housewife is doing all day, like washing the dishes and doing the laundry, um, don't 
engage her as a person. It, they're not the activities. She's not becoming the kind of person she wants to be by doing the activities. So there's something lacking in the way that the activities link up with the person's self-identity. That's the way I want to describe it, is that the alienated housewife is active and the alienated housewife is doing something valuable, which is, you know, raising kids maybe or, you know, doing some of these house chores that are not, you know, invaluable. They're, they're valuable. But there's something about the activity that doesn't link up with the alienated housewife's identity that she wants to create for herself. So that's why she's alienated. Okay. So for in the, the minutes that we have left, we can try to say a little bit more about positive value, which is later on in the next article going to be called objective value. And her point, the main point is she thinks this positive value or objective value is going to be a necessary feature of meaningfulness. Um, but she's going to have a hard time. I mean, this is no criticism of her, but it's hard to try to say what that is, what, what objective value is. But the main thing she wants to do is keep these two things separate, subjective value and objective value. And she's going to say that just because you love something, like you might love playing music or you might love sports, that's not doing that is not enough unless you can also say about the thing that it's objectively value, valuable or it has positive value. So she's going to have this, these two necessary, the main two components of her theory of meaningfulness are going to be subjective value, which she also calls subjective fulfillment, or, and positive value, which she also calls objective value. So let's read two things. I'm going to read from the first Susan Wolf article page 841. Hold on to your hats. And I'm reading in the first column. And I'm reading at the beginning of the second full paragraph. And she says, and remember, we're thinking about positive value, which she'll later call objective value. She says, it will not do to allow that a meaningful life is a life involved in projects that seem to have positive value from the perspective of the one who lives it. Allowing this would have the effect of erasing the distinctiveness of our interest in meaningfulness. It would blur or remove the difference between an interest in living a meaningful life and an interest in living a life that feels or seems meaningful. So just because something, act, some activity seems meaningful to you, or just because you find it, what she's later going to call subjectively fulfilling, that's not enough to, for a life to be meaningful. That activity or project has to be, have positive value or be objectively valuable. So she's going to play with this notion of subjective value and objective value. And she's going to say that a meaningful, that meaningful things that you do, activities, have to have both. You know, maybe it will help to say a little bit more about these words, subjective and objective, 
because what we said before is that one definition of subjective is that it's an adjective, subjective, and one definition of it is that it's based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. That's just from the, the Oxford American Dictionary. Subjective means based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. Another part of that definition says this, that something subjective is dependent on the mind or on an individual's perception for its existence. That's a little bit closer to this idea that you can think that something is fulfilling or valuable, but that's not enough for it to really be so. And you need that objective kind of value. And the way we talked about objective as an adjective previously with this definition, that something objective is not influenced by personal feelings or opinions and considering or representing facts. The related definition of objective is that something is not dependent on the mind for its existence, but it's actual. And so, wait, maybe I can... Well, one of her examples, here's an example of something that is subjectively valuable, but not objectively valuable, according to Susan Wolfe. I'm thinking, I'm trying to figure out which of her examples is the best. One is um, doing crossword puzzles. It's complicated because later on in her book, she sort of a little bit goes back on this. But, but she says that you might be really fulfilled and engaged by doing crossword puzzles. But she says that doing crossword puzzles is not objectively valuable. Whereas... Creating, say you're a painter and you find painting objectively valuable, art, she claims, is objectively valuable. So if you can match up what's objectively valuable with what's with subjectively valuable with what's objectively valuable, then you've got meaning in life. Another example that maybe is a little easier is that she says that, you know, here's an example of something that's subjectively valuable but not objectively valuable, riding roller coasters. Maybe you love riding roller coasters. You find that really subjectively valuable. But riding roller coasters is not objectively valuable, according to Susan Wolf. Another example that she gives is finding something on sale that you really wanted to buy. That can be subjectively valuable, but it's not objectively valuable. She thinks that things like, you know, creating art, doing helpful things for your family, these are objectively valuable. And so when you, or, you know, writing books, um, certain kinds of sporting activities that bring people together. These things are objectively valuable. So if you find things that, that are subjectively fulfilling to you, subjectively valuable, that are also objectively valuable, long story short, she's going to say these things add meaning to life. We have a lot more to say to try to figure out whether she's got this right about what's subjectively valuable and objectively valuable. And a lot of things to say about all these other things, but we'll just put that off for now 
And, you know, on Thursday, we only have the exam in class. So just come with a pencil or a pen, and I'll bring the blue books. And then we'll have a quiz next weekend, this coming weekend, for this next paper by Susan Wolf. And then we'll start to move on next week. So have a good afternoon, and I'll see you on Thursday.